coming up on Philosophy Talk. The mind and the world. Human beings collectively have experienced only a small, idiosyncratic sample of all that ever has been or will be in the universe. But on the basis of that experience, we have built great storehouses of knowledge about the world. How is that possible? Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Was Shakespeare right? Do we overestimate what we really know about the world? Can the mind make contact with a world that lies outside of the mind? Is there really a world out there? Where is my mind? Where is my mind? Can the mind make contact with the world as it really is? Our guest is Howard Robinson from the Central European University. The Mind and the World, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, the mind and the world. The mind and the world, or mind and matter, those are titles for a cluster of traditional philosophical problems that have to do with conscious minds and their relation to the physical world. The physical world, including the very brains that seem to, in some way, be the basis of the minds. But I suspect many of our listeners can, and indeed many philosophers, may think that modern science and common sense pretty much give us the answer to these questions. So, yeah, I think you're right, John, for, I mean, common sense thinks, and science thinks too. Well, look, there are two things. There's the mind, that's our ideas and sensations, and there's the world, that's all this physical stuff. But the mind is really just part of the world. It's just part of the physical universe, one complex physical system among many, many others. Yes, yeah, so the idea is the mind is, is just the brain. Or, or maybe the whole central nervous system. But anyway, it's something physical. And this physical thing that is the mind is affected by the external world through the sense organs and other parts of the body. And then the mind, in turn, affects other systems by sending out signals that move arms and legs and start digestive processes and keep the lips moving when we're on the radio and the like. Yeah, right. That's common sense. And it's also science. It's uh, the picture that's inside, that's in embodied by contemporary neuroscience and psychology. So, yeah, that's right. So if we solve the problem, Ken, if so, instead of the mind and the world, we could just think about the pressing problem of why the Giants have so much trouble winning away games. Well, John, you know. You know we haven't solved the problem. From the birth of philosophy and even before, deep thinkers have found the picture we just sketched very, very problematic. Well, you're certainly right about that. The picture is problematic from the point of view of religion and from religiously minded philosophers, for one thing. Where does it leave the soul? Where does God fit in? If God has a mind, it doesn't seem like it will be a physical system. How about the afterlife? And even if you're not religious, you might think the picture really doesn't allow for free will or consciousness. One picture that does seem to take care of the problems you just mentioned is Descartes. Descartes' dualism, where the mind is the soul. And the soul's not part of the physical world at all. It's it's an immaterial thing that exists not by taking up space like physical objects do, but by just by thinking and being conscious. Descartes' most famous line is, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum in Latin. The idea that just because we think, because we are conscious, we exist and know that we exist. 
and that this could be the case even if the physical world weren't there, if it were just an illusion. Minds are one thing. We know they exist. Physical objects are another. They're dubious. Right. right. In this world, in this view, the mind could exist without the physical world at all. I mean, there could be there could be experience and consciousness without a physical world even existing. So if you think like that, then life after death is in a non-physical heaven or hell is, is not a problem. And God's mind, like ours, isn't a physical uh, thing. So that makes sense, too. So we've solved all those worries you had earlier. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, Ken, now we have two theories. The one we started with we can call somewhat pompously monistic materialism. Monistic because there's just one kind of stuff materialism because that one kind of stuff there is is matter. Minds are matter. Minds are part of the physical world. Then there's dualism, which is there's two kinds of stuff in the world, mind and matter. Well, so we got you said we've got a view in which there's only matter, and then there's a view in which there's mind and matter, so we need a view in which there's only mind, and that's that's Dar- that's Barclay's view. It's often called uh, idealism. I mean, he agrees with Descartes that minds are not matter, but he goes even further. He doesn't believe in matter at all. He thinks that the world consists entirely of minds and, the, and their experiences. What, what we call physical things, things we call physical, just are just recurring patterns of experience. On Berkeley's view, to be is to perceive or to be perceived. It's to be a mind or, or the experience of a mind. Uh, that's his mo- most famous line. So you, you can think of idealism, going back to your pretentious categorization there, monistic immaterialism. There's only one kind of stuff, minds, and the physical world is part of or an aspect of mind. You know, Ken, I, I think Descartes' picture and Barclay's picture are, are quite beautiful. It's fun to think about them, uh, to see the arguments they give for them. I enjoy teaching them. I love them. But I must admit, I'm pretty stuck with the sort of common sense materialism we started with, even though I don't love it and it's not very pretty. Yeah, but John, you know what? I, I share I share your taste there. But you know what? Perhaps you and I are just creatures of fashion. But luckily, we have a less fashion-bound philosopher with a view closer to Barclays to help us see the problems with our view and the plausibility of the alternatives we just rejected. That's Howard Robinson, who will join us all the way from Budapest, where he teaches at the Central European University. And I have no doubt that at least some members of our audience have grappled with these questions, too. I hope they will join us at 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, talks to someone working on the intersection of the mind, the brain, and other parts of the body. She files this report. If you want to talk to the brain, you have to go through the body. At least that's how it used to be. So if you were injured or paralyzed, communication with the brain could be cut off. That's changing as a result of new technologies. The goal, simply put, is to help people uh, that may be suffering from a paralysis or some other injury move again. Krishna Shinoy is an associate professor at Stanford University who works on neural prosthetics. That means reading the electrical signals your brain sends out and translating them into the movements of a robotic arm even if you're paralyzed, like Christopher Reeve, the actor who played Superman. When Christopher Reeve was no longer able to move his arms, he was still able to think about moving his arms. And why not eavesdrop in on the electrical activity associated with individual cells in the brain called neurons? Shinoy uses electrodes to pick up those brain signals and interpret what they mean. When you think about moving your arm to the right, for example, a certain neuron will pipe up. By listening to 100 neurons at a time, you can get a pretty clear picture of where someone wants their arm to go. 
Right now, you're listening to neural activity from a monkey in Shinoi's lab. It's being fed snacks. Each time the monkey reaches out its arm to grab a snack, the movement is preceded by a burst of clicks. If you filter the sound, it's even clearer. And in that way, we're able to listen in on the electrical chatter of the brain, this and predict very fast within only a few tenths of a second exactly how your arm should be moving through the world. Shinoi says that data can be used to control prosthetic limbs. Of course, your brain doesn't just send signals out. It also takes in all kinds of information about the world. Other researchers are working on replicating that kind of sensory input so that sight could be restored to blind people, for example. Shinoi says ultimately prosthetic devices will be a two-way street, reading information out of the brain and feeding it back in through sensors. If I reach out and pick up that cup of water, I need to know how hard to grip, and for that I really rely on pressure sensors. I'd also like to know how hot or cold that glass of water is. Maybe this becomes very important if that glass of water is a cup of coffee. The result could restore an incredible amount of function to people who've experienced debilitating injuries or disease. And robotic arms are not the only thing you could control. So, for example, if you're able to move a cursor around a computer screen, then really anything you can imagine, which is you know, quite large these days, controlling from your computer screen you could control. So someone who's completely paralyzed could call for help, change the TV channel, or even control a wheelchair. Not to mention checking email and browsing the internet, all just by thinking about it. The multitude of things that we're all very comfortable and, 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 and increasingly experienced with dealing with our computer would be returned to the patient that previously was not able to move a limb. But all this makes me wonder, if all you really need is a central nervous system to control prosthetic body parts and receive information about the world, and that central nervous system is really just a collection of cells receiving and putting out electrical impulses, what are we? I mean, what does it mean to be a person? What is myself? <laughs> That's a great question. I think, I think the deepest thinking on this issue is probably one of the original 1960s Star Trek episodes, right? That's the one where an alien steals Spock's brain and uses it to control an entire planet. Space, the final frontier. If a, you know, sort of our brain and spinal cord sitting in a jar is really who we are, then it does really push this question of what is mind, what is brain, what is body, who are we, and the greater questions of consciousness and self-identity. Perhaps those questions are the real final frontier. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Cornelius. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.